0: Just two short passages I want to read from the uh, that seric scroll before. These are those that uh, some that particularly jarring both to Christians and Jews, and to show why they have been uh, the scrolls have been neglected and how much they mean for us. Uh, are these the what? Pardon me, which scrolls are these? From? Oh, uh, this is the seric scroll. This is the first one. It's from the eighth the eighth plate. You see, they are rolled up and they they have to see. There are pages like a book. There are pages like a book here. Uh, but they're put together side by side, you see. You, you, you never read a scroll like this, the way they always do in the movies and on the stage. You never do it that way. You have to roll it this way, well, 23 feet long. You have to. Some arms have to keep rolling and unrolling it. Well, this one says, uh, and in the council of the church, there shall be 12 men in charge. They shall be, and there shall be three priests, the head of everything, who shall be perfect, in all things that have been revealed, and uh, from the Torah, from the Law, and in Oseh and in doing righteously and justly, and judgment, being wise in righteousness, judgment and judgment, and loving mercy, and being humble, humble in their ways, each man walking with his neighbor, to be sure, to be firm in the faith while they are upon this earth, in a strong, uh, with a. With a strong well yet with a strong sense and resolve, and with a contrite spirit no, that sounds see the a presidency of three, the council of twelve, and the qualifications, they have to be perfect in just about everything, and along with that they have to be humble uh, and not pull rank or anything like that and walk with a, a contrite spirit and then it quotes here where they came out, and it says, "When the time comes uh, Yes, and in those times, will come in Israel to, to establish a new order of things. They shall go forth from the midst of the, the, of the company of the Anshe Ha'awel, of men of iniquity. Awel is iniquity, apostasy, going the wrong way. They shall go forth out of the midst of the wicked, you see. And, uh, yes, now they, to go out into the Mid- Midbar, to go out into the desert, the midbar of the desert is not howling complete desert midbar is always the area between the desert and the sown where you go out uh, you can graze cattle there but it's it's scarce no place for farm you can't farm there but neither would you starve there if you're careful to go out into the desert and there and then it quotes and it quotes Isaiah, there to prepare a uh, yes and there uh, and to prepare there a way for Lord, and they write Jehovah in code here, for Jehovah, even as it's been written by the prophet Isaiah in 4013. Uh, in the wilderness make straight his paths, uh, prepare a highway in the wilderness for our God. Uh, well that is according to the teaching of the Scriptures. And then there shall when they are there, they shall observe all the laws that have been given by Moses from the beginning, and all the commandments which have been given from time to time, from generation from eight to eight, from dispensation dispensation of the Church, as it has been revealed to the the uh, yeah very interesting uh, to the Navien Abruach Kadosh. By the Holy Ghost, they're all, often using to uh, referring to the Holy Ghost. I've had some Israeli students in the class, and and uh, they really sat up when they heard that. Does it say that? Yes, And it says Holy Ghost. All right, and Holy Ghost is what we have here. And then this ordinance that they that's in the uh, supplement to the Sarek Scroll, found at the same time, this one where they're the order of the church. Just one section we want to read, uh, and this shall be the order of all uh, of all the. Church of Israel, well, this is the Yechad of, of all the community of Israel, the host of Israel, well, the host is the military aside, host of Israel uh, in the last days when they shall organize themselves into a church, uh, in order to walk according to all the ordinances of the sons of Zadok, of Zadok the righteous, of Markezdik. Then the description here of the sacrament at the end here, uh, and when, the, and when they are met for the table of the church, the Shulchan Hayat, the, the table of the church, this is a, the sacrament, a special meal, you see, for the, the table of the church, or to partake of the new wine, the tea roast, it's not the other wine to drink, it's to, to partake of the new wine, uh, and the table is all properly set and everything in order, and the wine has been properly mixed for drinking, no one shall put forth his hand upon the uh, Yado uh before first, no one shall put well it's the syntax here no one shall put forth his hand upon the bread or reach it out to drink the wine before until the priest has first blessed it, and he must bless it before all, and then uh uh, he he, must, he puts forth his hand, he, he blesses the bread, and then he blesses the new wine, and then he reaches forth his hand and puts it on the bread. He must put his hand first on the bread. He's going to pass it, or he partakes of it first of all. And then he says, And after that, Yishalak Mashiach Yisrael, thou the. Messiah of Israel shall, well, hereafter, it says. If it was just describing part of the ritual, the next part, the Messiah of Israel, but it doesn't say that. It says, akher, it doesn't say, Akrehein. but after this, the next thing that happens, it doesn't say that. It says, hereafter, hereafter, the Messiah of Israel shall reach forth his hand upon the bread. Uh, And after they have blessed all the, after he has blessed all the the community uh, and of the church, uh, each man, uh, each man, accordingly, according to his rank, the sacrament shall be passed to them. Beruca after the blessing. After the blessing, it shall be passed to each man. Uh, Lefei uh, berucho according to his office in the church. You see, uh, and this is the order of the church for all the uh, quorums, meetings of the quorums. Ave, Asher. Ave. Uh, ashray anshe whenever 12 shall come together it doesn't say 12 it says 10 whenever 10 ashray the 10 men shall come together whenever as many t- 10 come they must have the sacrament is the point and must be done in this way the bread and the wine shall be blessed because after comes the messiah well of course that's why we have the sacrament see this has no resemblance at all to the, to the eucharists of the of the christian churches and so forth anything the jews do the uh, St. Basil writes, and Oregon says the same, but Basil is quite eloquent on the subject, one of the, the eight great doctors of the church, that we know that they baptized, but nothing in the Scripture tells us how they baptized. We know they married, but nobody. we have no no instance, no example of what a marriage ceremony should be, we have none of these rituals handed down. He says, we know they had the sacrament, we don't know how it was administered, there's nothing said about that. The Last Supper is one thing, but how do you do it in the church? And so here we have the way it should be done in the community, of course it's the way we do it. And why? Because the Messiah is Israel will be with them. And when, remember in, uh, in Matthew 14 and Mark 26, the Lord says, When he has had the sacrament, he says, Now I will not partake of this wine again with you until I partake of it anew in my Father's kingdom. Then we'll have it again. And every time he appears, after his resurrection, he orders bread and wine to be brought and has the meal with them, as he does with the Nephites in Third Nephi. He, he, He administers the sacrament to them. He blesses it personally when the Messiah of Israel does it. And why do we do it? One purpose that they do always remember Him. He's in Why? That they may have His Spirit to be with them right now. This represents the presence of the Messiah, the time when He shall come, when He was with us before He had this meal, when He shall be with us hereafter He had this meal, and we are remembering both of them right now. We're looking forward to Him. They may always have his spirit with them and they always remember him. So this is what the sacrament is. You can imagine how this has upset both the Christians and the Jews. They said, well, we don't have anything like this. What's going on here? Well, now we're back to our story and got to move along, and there's plenty here. So let's turn to the. Now, if you haven't got your Book of Mormon, you might as well go home. I mean, or it's a nice day, for heaven's sake, go out. But there's no point to coming to class without your Book of Mormon. See? And then, in chapter 4, they're going back to Jerusalem again. They're still going another time. And notice it talks about Laban and his 50 and his tens of thousands, his city patrol of 50, his tens of thousands in the field because he was high commander. Exactly the same position that Josh held, Joash held in the Lachish letters. And you notice that uh, Nephi is a very powerful speaker and a terrific persuader. What a salesman he would be you. There are a number of speeches by him here, and he is great in the swazoria, he, he is very strong in the protreptic type of, of oratory, which is urging somebody to do something, and he has a line of reason that builds up to a climax and then just forces you into it. And he says here, back to Jerusalem, phooey, they've had enough, a bad enough time, they were chased out the first time, didn't get anywhere, we've got to go back. Let's go up, let's be strong like Moses. He spake to the waters and so forth, and the Red Sea, divided hither and thither the armies of Pharaoh. Uh, they would accept that tradition, you see. Then he argues in line, you know that this is true, and an angel has spoken to you. Whereof, wherefore can you doubt? The, uh, well now, wait a minute. They saw an angel and they can doubt, wherefore can you doubt? Why weren't they completely overwhelmed by the agent? Why didn't they con- that convince them for the rest of their lives? This is an interesting phenomenon. Brigham Young says, pray that you will not see an angel, you See, because uh, everyone who's seen an angel has uh, apostatized from the church, nearly all of them did. And uh, and wherefore can you doubt? Well, when the angel is gone, you are still there, is the point. You see, You're still yourself, you haven't changed your character. You may see 10 years, that doesn't make any difference. Uh, there was the glory of Moses on the children of Israel, you see, but as soon as he left them, they immediately were up to their old shenanigans, the, uh, the golden calf and all the rest of it. Do, the, do these things leave a permanent imprint? You can have, uh, you say, uh, a person goes back to his normal life, and on this life, the earth has a very strong hold on us. Nothing is more powerful than gravitation, the weakest form in the universe. But you know, if uh, it was Mel Cook, who was a, an explosive explosion, you know, he invented the implosion, explosion, uh, he was at the it's up to you here, Uh, Mel Cook, he said uh, if the entire Earth uh, was made of TNT, entire Earth, and it all blew up, what do you think would happen? Now here's the weakest force in the universe, the force of gravity. It would only expand less than 3%. It wouldn't go boom like they do in in Star Wars and so forth. Where the planet explodes in all directions, that doesn't happen. The force of gravity is so powerful with the Earth, that would only swell up three percent, and that 's it if the whole thing was solid TNT, not it was some at the center, but this is uh, how powerful, and it holds us too, as Faust says, the air, the hot atmosphereer, after all that you experienced, all your spooks and so forth, the Earth has you again, and it holds you very hard and this is what happens to all of us here. so if you have a sea angels occasionally, uh, don't let it turn your hand. What kind of a, of a display really changes your character what kind? Ca- it's an inside, it's invisible, it's some experience you have, something that hits you all of a sudden. Well, so he goes on here, Laban is 50, is tens of thousands. Well, then he speaks to them, and you know the angel spoke unto you. He says, "How? why can you doubt that? Let us go up, the Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. Here's already a very interesting uh, anticipation of Laban's fate. He's going to destroy Laban, Lord will, this puts him a. Well, it's his his subconscious here speaking, I suppose, but you see what an argument he has. And then, this fifth verse is interesting, too, Uh, in an old saint's herald where Emma Smith is being interviewed after the death of the prophet. Uh, She says, when they got to this passage, Lord uh, Jesus, Joseph Smith was translating, you see, with the seer stones, and he, he looked up with surprise and said, Emma? Did Jerusalem have walls? He didn't even know the city had walls. He didn't know anything about what he was writing here. Yes, Jerusalem had walls, you know. And, uh, and then he goes on, and he was led by the Spirit. Now this passage reassures anybody, you see. He was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things he should do. This is a very popular passage of the Book of Mormon because inside of all of us there comes that time when you're led by the Spirit, not knowing what you should do, and yet you are willing to be led. Because you, well, what's your own judgment got to do about it? You don't know the situation. They don't know the situation in Jerusalem anymore. What are they going to do? And that's, well, he finds Laban drunk and so forth. And he, it takes 13 steps for him to rationalize himself. He doesn't rationalize himself. It's the spirit. But he is so reluctant. And I told you the story about the two Arabs where little Fayak Sali uh, says there's something wrong with this story, this is, I was criticized. It's such a bloody thing, this should never happen. This shouldn't be put in here and so forth. But this is the way the Arabs do things so that Fayek can and the uh, Salim, after the class, were really quite worried. They said, why did he wait so long to cut off his head? That was not according to our custom or behavior, and it was his chance and so forth. But he waited a long time. He has a real struggle here, you notice, in spite of the fact. Here he is, It's the notice he's, the, ha- the hilt thereof was of pure gold and the blade thereof of pre- most precious steel. Uh, steel is always precious, but they had plenty of steel in Nehi's there, but it was very precious. It's, Corlevin uh, steel and so forth, uh, Damascus steel, were uh, a sword was worth thousands of dollars. They were so valuable. that It could cut through an anvil. It was such marvelous stuff. Here is 700 years older than this is the pure steel blade. <laughs> very bad, uh, very bad uh, Xerox here. Uh, the, the pure steel blade of uh, Tutankhamun with a pure gold handle. The handle is pure gold and the blade is pure steel. And that's what he said here. Very precious, a very valuable weapon. And here's Laban, dead drunk in the street, a disgusting figure, but you're hardly going to attack a sleeping man. As we're told in the ballad of uh, Clark Saunders, for shame to slaying a sleeping man." We don't do that sort of thing. He doesn't want to do that either. But he was constrained by, the, he had the impulse to kill Laban. But I said in my heart, never at any time have I shed blood of man. That's the first thing he wouldn't do it, because that's the first rule. God will not that man should shed blood, but in all things has forbidden it since the beginning of man as we read in Ether 8 and 19. So he shrunk and wouldn't do it. That means he shrunk. He was sick. He was sick at the stomach. He wasn't going to do it at all. The Spirit said to me again, Behold, notice the next reason. The Lord has delivered him into thy hands. This is your chance. Uh, Like other high military officials in our time, Nazi criminals and so forth, he knew Laban was a murderer. He knew that he was a lawless man because he'd robbed them. He was a thief. He'd he made him a promise, and when they want to deal, he chased him out and tried to kill him, took all the, took all I left with him, and that was the end of the deal. That's the sort of a person he was dealing with. Well, isn't that the way to handle that sort of thing? So, so he thinks so of that as a pretty good reason. And I knew there's another reason. I knew he had sought to take away my own life. Yet I knew he wouldn't hearken to the commandments of the Lord. There's another argument. And also he had taken away our property. Well, it's about time. No, he ha- he still won't do it. And the 12th verse, and the Spirit said to me, Again, all this still holding back, not enough. Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hand. Another argument, Be Lord, the Lord slayeth the wicked, he's doing, to bring forth his righteous purposes. Isn't that right? Well, it is better that one man should perish than that the nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. You've got to get that record anyhow. Now when I, Lord, heard these words, I remembered the words of the Lord which He had spoken to me in the wilderness, saying, Inasmuch as you keep my commandments." So it's a commandment. This is a special order, you see. This isn't just an impulse and a chance. He wouldn't be justified in doing this on his own, but now he gets a special order, you see. Then he says, Thy seed shall keep my commandments, they shall prosper in the land. Another argument, 15th verse, And I also thought, keeping the commandments according to the law of Moses, they should have the law. Another verse, sixteen, and I also knew that the law was engraven on the plates of grass, and I'd have to brass, and I'd have to get them, I wouldn't get them otherwise. And seventeenth verse, and again I knew that the Lord delivered Laban in my hands for this cause. It had a definite purpose. this has taken thirteen steps to, to convince him that he'd better go ahead with it. Accordingly I did according to his commandments, wherefore I did obey the voice of the Spirit. Well, he was a skilled hunter, as you know, with a bow, what he does when he's in the mountain there, he's pretty good. But after an agony of debate, he he finally does it. He puts on his garments uh, and guards on his armor in the treasury, and then we have an interesting thing. As they're carrying the engravings out, he he meets the servant of, uh, well, here you get a typical Glimpse into the Lakish letters, don't you? 22nd verse. He spake unto me concerning the elders of the Jews, knowing that his master Laban had been out at night among them, holding night sessions with the elders. A sense a great sense of danger and of tension here. And I spake unto he was wearing his ceremonial armor. It's a crisis, you see. And I spake unto him as if it had been Laban. And I also spake unto him that he should carry the engravings, which were on the plates to his brethren outside the walls. And he thought when I said the brethren, he thought I thought the elders and they were outside and they wanted to get the plates out of the city and so forth, something like this. This is an interesting situation, see. And as they went along, he babbles along the sermon. He spake unto me many times concerning the elders of the Jews as they walk along, you see. As I went forth unto my brethren who were without the walls. He kept up a steady stream of talk. He, puts him, he fills him in about the elders and what's going on in town and so forth. He's a very conscientious secretary. And when the Laban's Laban servants appeared in the, in the dark, of course, they ran for their lives. They thought it was Laban, and so forth. He called after them and said, it's only me, and so forth. Then Laban's servant was to be terrified, and I grabbed him and held his mouth. You see, he was large and powerful, and I swore unto him to come down to us. Now here we get a bit of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were happening at that time. Of course, we have them. This is the, this is the earlier time, but we have scrolls from the earlier time. Along the Dead Sea now in, in the cave of letters and so forth. And so verse 33, I spake unto him an oath that now remember, he was a servant, he was a servant Zoram, and he was the servant of a man who was not very easy to get along with. You can be sure you know what type of man Laban was by now. He's nice little character sketches in the Book of Mormon. Well, and uh, so I, Zoram, I'm sure, was very glad to do this. His name is very interesting. It's a, it's a Canaanite name, being a servant. See, he probably not an Israelite. He was a, one of them, because throughout the Book of Mormon, The the Zoramites always retain a special ethnic identity. They're always Zoramites and always by themselves. So Zoram is of another blood, just as uh well, Ishmael is probably related. We'll see, Ishmael comes again. See. That he would be a free man. See, that's why you go into the desert. He would uh, be a free man like to us if we go down into the wilderness. So that's the only way you can do it. We have gone forth into the wilderness, as we just read that. When the time comes, the sons of the covenant shall leave the world of the wicked and go out into the desert to prepare his way. And this is the idea, you see. What does huh? the zone mean? The zone? Oh, it means a strong rain, a, fresh, a refreshing rain. It's not a Hebrew word, though. It's an Aramaic word, yeah? So they from Zoram's just just oh, figure they're outside the city taking the records out that would that indicate that they, that back, it was a regular thing that in times of crisis, no, this was a crisis they were trying to make a break for it they to could take have been records actually, out and hide we them. know they had been stowing the records we know had the official records they had places to store them well look at that copper scroll Right. and remember this these are the temple treasures these are the official treasures of the nation so they were already hiding these things up well ahead of time and this was another crisis things look bad here and so this could be going on. Uh, it blew over for a few years, 11 years, and then, they were, and then it got really serious. And um, remember, they thought it wouldn't be destroyed. The brethren thought nobody destroys Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy it. In 597, he wanted to save it like everybody else. Once you've conquered it, it's to your advantage to leave it there. It was only because he was hopping mad when Zedekiah, whom he had put on the throne, you see. Notice the name Zedekiah is the same as Zadok here. Zedekiah, whom he'd put on the throne, rebelled against him. Well, he wasn't going to tolerate that, and so he destroyed the city and put all, all of Zedekiah's family to death and uh, blinded him. So, and when they got there, the, oh yes, here it goes. And, Surely the Lord hath commanded us to do this thing. Shall we not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? If you're going to keep the commandments of the Lord and be diligent, you have to do what they're doing. You have to come out of the midst of the wicked. You, you notice the passages we read the last time. They've come to plan a temple, a true temple for Aaron and for Israel and so forth. Until Adke Yavo, until the, the Messiah of Israel shall come. They're preparing this way. His way in the wilderness. Shall we not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? Therefore, if thou wilt go down into the wilderness to my father, thou shalt have place with us. That means being accepted as a member of the side. When you're fleeing from a, from the enemy, and this comes later in the dreams of Nephi, and you uh, go to a great shiak in his tent, uh, you go in and kneel and put your and put the head of his on your shoulder. A figure we find very clear in the Book of Mormon, and you say anadachilach, I am your supplement, your supplement, your suppliant. Your supplement, indeed. I am your suppliant, and he's obliged then to say, ah, ahlan wa sahlan wa marhaban, and ha- have a place, have a family, have a share in our tent, and so forth. You're taken in, ahlan. ahlan same word, word is tent, same word as family. Ahl is a family, ohl is a tent. And uh, you have Atlan, you have the family, Wasathlan, or Marhaban, or is a wide place. We'll make a wide place so people move over and you have a place to sit down and now you're a member. And he says the same thing, you will have place, will you, you have a Marhab with us if you come down with us. And Zoram took courage at the word, it sounded good to him, and his name was Zoram, and he promised that he would go down in the wilderness with my father. And he enters the covenant. He made an oath unto us that he would tarry with us. From that, fo- says so after that, we didn't worry about him. He w- we knew he wouldn't break his oath. Uh, he joins the community, and the community, of course, are raided in the city as outlaws. Of course, the king and especially Laban is out to get them. They they chase them out. That says here. Uh, when they, uh, Zoram had made an oath, he came. To our fears concerning him did. Uh, uh, Did cease, but here in the verse ahead of that, we were desirous that he should tarry with us for this cause that the Jews might not know concerning our flight into the wilderness. The police were after them, lest they should pursue us and destroy us. So Zoram couldn't go back and report. That would never do. That's remember that what happens in the case of. Uh, the prophet Uriah going down into Egypt. They report and they go after him and catch up with him. Here's another interesting touch in the next chapter. Remember, none of the people wanted to go. None of them were on fire about this journey. Laman and Lemuel, of course, were flat against it. Uh, Nephi had to have a special revelation. Of course, Lehi had had plenty of them. And He had to persuade Sam, had to work on him, and now we see that Mama was against it from the beginning too. She didn't like it at all. Um, she was filled with joy when they returned because she had supposed they'd perished and had complained against my father. Sarah is the worried Jewish Mama here, and she she really re- tears into him. She complains just like the boys did. He was a visionary man. He was a piqueach. How can you trust in your crazy visions? Now what? Behold, thou hast led us forth into the land of our inherit- from the land of our inheritance—and my sons are no more, and we shall perish in the wilderness, etc. You can hear her going on and on. He gives her a bad time until they finally come back again. Then there's great relief because they come back, and then it's joy. And after this manner of language, had my mother kept at my father all the time they were away, she, she really worked on him. So nobody likes this trip. Well, he says, no, and his patient rejoinder is so typical. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm a visionary man, he says. <laughs> uh, Papa, uh, you're there. Uh, behold, I have But remember, behold, the tense is important here. I have obtained the land of promise. He already has it, you see. The, the promise is a promise. It's all things are present once you have made the transition, once you have accepted it. He already got the land. I have obtained the land of promise. And after this, when he goes out, Yea, I know the Lord will deliver thy sons out of the hands and bring them back again. Don't worry, it's all right. After this manner of language, my father Lehi did comfort my mother Sarah until they came back. And then her joy was full, and my mother was comforted, and she spake, Now I know of a surety. She doubted all along, she says in the 8th verse, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. Till then. No, she's been scolding him all along. And after this manner of language did she speak? He brings us into the family here. These things going on, and they rejoiced and they answered them as back. And notice what he brought. What were in the plates? The it was the Tanakh he brought back. It wasn't just the plates of Moses. It was the Tanakh. T is for Torah. That's the five books of Moses. N A and N is for Nabiin, the prophets. Prophets and K is for the Kitabim, which are the literary works and the histories. The histories and the literary works like the Psalms and so forth, history and literature. So they, they call the entire Old Testament the Tanakh, the Torah, the Prophets, and, and that's exactly what was in the bronze plates. we read here, notice verse 11, He beheld they did contain the five books of Moses, Verse 12, "...and also a record of the Jews from the beginning." Their complete history is there, too, down to the time of Zedekiah, king of Judah. See, they were the Jews, the inhabitants of Judah were Jews. And thirdly, 13th verse, "...and also the prophecies of the Holy Prophets." So it contained the prophecies of the Holy Prophets. It contained a record of the Jews from the beginning, right down to Zedekiah, the time they left, and it contained the five books of Moses. It was the Tanah. So they had the complete Bible, the Nephites did. And also, they had their genealogy, a descendant of Joseph. This is an interesting thing, you notice. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. The genealogy, and he found out that he was a descendant of Joseph and so forth. Uh, why didn't he, who was an important rich man, have it and so forth? Well, these documents were very rare and they were secret. They were kept. He wouldn't be able to get them, and Laban was also a descendant of Joseph, a direct direct line. That's probably why they were in his house, but only one person at a time could receive these genealogical records. And that was the direct descendant. In this case, it happened to be Laban. And uh, and my father, when he read these things, was filled with the Spirit and began to prophesy, and he says, These plates of brass should go forth unto all nations, all kindreds, tongues, and people who were always his seed. <coughs> now, this is an amazing thing, you see. At that time, remember, The the New Testament, the Old Testament, was not in the possession of Jews. You couldn't have it. It was a secret book. It was circulated, relation was very limited. The law was read publicly once a year, but only the Sopharim, the Scribes and Pharisees. That's why they were so jealous of their rights. The Sopharim was the one that started interpreting the law in Palestine where they didn't have a, in Babylon where they didn't have a temple. They took the right, and they got a proprietary claim, the the Talmuds they call themselves rabbis, which means the great ones by their own title. The the uh, Talmud is full of the most outrageous boasting. You never heard men have built themselves up like those. They were absolutely insufferable, just like the scribes and Pharisees. So the scribes, the Sophrim is the scribes, of the uh, of the New Testament, so that the Lord had to, to face up to. But you didn't have a copy of the Bible in those days. And what's more, it wasn't nobody, but a Judah, could have it at all. I thought it applied to them. It wasn't until the third century that Ptolemy had the 70 Jews come down, he was now the, the king of Egypt, immediate direct successor of Alexander the Great. He was a great and competent ruler, and he was collecting the greatest library in the world because the king of uh, the... <coughs> we talked about <coughs> uh, uh, Cyrus the uh, of uh, Lydia. They were collecting libraries. They, these tyrants, you heard about these tyrants, <laughs> they tried to build their prestige by by uh, building up big libraries everywhere. The biggest library, the better, better culture. <laughs> and as arrival rival to, uh, to libraries in the north, Ptolemy wanted to have the largest library in the world. And he was told there was one book he didn't have. He thought he had every book and it says, on religion. He says there's one you don't have, and that's the book of the Jews. <laughs> so he ordered the 70 Jews to be brought back to Alexandria. And he shut each one up in a special cubby by himself and gave him a copy of the Old Testament to translate. Then he compared the translations, and of course, the story is they were all word for word, letter for letter. But we still have the Septuagint, that's why it's called the Septuagint, the translation of the 70 Jews. And by comparing them, he knew that they were right. But the, uh, and what's more, we have the Septuagint, which is 300 years older than any well, far older than that, than any Hebrew text we have. The oldest Hebrew text we have is the Ben Asher Codex from the 9th century AD. We have a Greek text from 3rd century BC of the Old Testament, that's the wonderful. We have that and we compare it. And it's a very interesting thing where the scrolls differ from, remember, in Cave One, the thing I could have brought along because I have the, the bound, bound copy of it, was a complete copy of Isaiah. A thousand years older than any other Hebrew copy of Isaiah known. There are 3,000 different different readings in it, but they're mostly trivial readings, showing that how marvelously well these scriptures have been handed down. But where there are differences, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the old, old ones, see, always follow the Septuagint, not as a rule follow the Septuagint. And where Joseph Smith differs, and where the Book of Mormon follows, say, Isaiah, there are quite a number, see, a long passages from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, where they differ from our King James Bible, they follow the Septuagint too, and they follow the older text. So we have it here, but remember this. Nobody outside of Israel ever thought of, mm-hmm. ever even dreamed about the Old Testament. I mean, Ptolemy uh, uh, didn't even know about it. Though he was a very learned man, he didn't even know about it until somebody told him, a Jew in his court told him that. And so he got these 70 men and had it translated. But until then, you see, it was known only in Judah and only to a very select group of jeal- scribes who jealously guarded it. So when it says a thing like this, these plates of grass go forth to all nations, kindred, tongues of people, is a very shocking news. Because out of, out of Alexandria, then, see, it came; the copies were made then, and that's where we get our Septuagint. It spread throughout the whole world from there, and uh, all the world has the Bible now. And nobody ever dreamed that this uh, local national record would become the world record and so forth. Wherefore, he said that the brad plates should never perish, neither should Notice this doesn't refer to the Book of Mormon, this refers to the brass plates here, what's beyond them here, the bronze plates. And that's it, they're still bright, neither be dimmed any more by time. He prophesied many things concerning them." So we still have them to this day, and they come down to us. And, uh, and these are great words to us. Notice the, the why did we need them on the, on the trip here, and this is the 21st verse, that we could preserve the commandments of the Lord to our children. The commandments here both in the prophets and in the writings, of course, and in the book of Moses. Well now the next one. Uh, he tells us, he's going to give us an abbreviated count. I write the things which are pleasing unto the world. I do not write, but the things which are pleasing to God and unto those who are not of this world. That's important. The Book of Mormon is not to be peddled for entertainment or TV fare. It is not meant to be diverting. Uh, Mark Twain says it's simply chloroform in print. Most people can't even get through it. I think it's the dullest book in the world. We know it's anything but that, but it isn't written as a bestseller. It's not written for the sake of the story or the thrills, although people are trying to build it up for that to make a quick buck, you know, today. It goes on everywhere. Uh, When you pick up the Book of Mormon, you you shift your mind into another gear, especially, and uh, not to relax, you have to make it a working force, then, really get going. Well, then here, they still have to take another trip back to Jerusalem. So, and it's get to the wives, that his daughters should take the daughters to wife of, of Ishmael. So they go down in the second verse, and to, went straight to the house of Ishmael. He, he knows where he's going. And my brethren should again return to the land of Ishmael and bring down Ishmael and his family into the wilderness. Well, of course, the name with Ishmael. Remember, the great rival of Isaac was Ishmael. Ishmael claims the covenant. and. The Muslims claim they're, they're Arabs, they're from Ishmael, and they, they claim that it was not Isaac who became the true heir of the covenant, but it was Ishmael. So there's always this fierce rivalry between them and the people, not between them. They both buried Abraham together. I mentioned that at a, at a meeting once when we had a lot of Arabs in the school, how Abraham, uh, Ishmael, and uh, Ishmael and Isaac were reconciled and were, were good friends, and that hit them so hard, some of these, Arabs that one of those boys went functionally blind for two weeks. He was red and he just went wild. Don't tell us that Ishmael ever, ever, ever made a concession uh, to Isaac. A Jew? Absolutely none. He went crazy, you know. I so he went He went blind for two weeks. He to be blind. <laughs> decided to drop the course. <laughs> that wasn't the course. That was the talk I gave, though. But it was. It was the consul in Salt Lake who complained. He says, so many of those boys are having nervous breakdowns, because they recognize the Book of Mormon was their book. What could they do about it? You go home, and it means that. You see, they, that's not nice. Those abs don't mess around. Uh, alas, <laughs> they uh, well, they're they're good ones and so forth. And this is what you have: Ishmael is a good Arab. But anyone with the name of Ishmael, you can be sure is well. Of course, Lehi himself is of Manasseh, and the rule is among these people: you must marry your bint ami. Every girl must marry the her paternal uncle, the brother of her of her father. She she must marry him. And so it's very likely that Ishmael and Lehi were brothers because they were both the tribe of Manasseh. Half Manasseh was the de- desert tribe. <laughs> they lived way. West and east of the Jordan, there, uh, out in the desert, and uh, and Manasseh and Joseph. But Manasseh was the wild one. Well, he went to the house of Ishmael, Ishmael, and gained favor in his sight. And Ishmael, insomuch that we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. He listened. He was a righteous man. It came to pass, the Lord did soften his heart. That was necessary again, you see. Uh, The way the Lord gets things done in the Book of Mormon, He always has to end up softening somebody's heart or nothing would move. Same thing in our society. And also his household, that they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the house." Now notice how they're not only willing, but they're able to do it. Right, life, they don't have to stay six weeks and get ready, settle my affairs, and so forth. This Ishmael was ready to go. They went up to Ishmael's house. He's a desert man, just Lehi himself is a merchant. Remember, he starts out when he's traveling in the desert, he sees the light on the rock, and so forth, on his trip, and then he staggers back home. But here the. Uh, they, they make no fuss about it. We can talk about the elaborate preparations of Levi and that sort of thing. These people know how to get around, and certainly Ishmael did, didn't Didn't hesitate, apparently. In so much, we did speak to him, and the Lord softened his heart, and so they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the tent of my father. Uh, this would be out of the question, of course, if the family were a, a settled family, not used to travel or anything like that, but they they had that tradition. And the... Uh, mm-hmm. How strong tradition was that, to marry your brother's children? Well, it's strict um, among the, uh, the Absi who preserved the old archaic customs. It's a very strict rule among the desert Arabs, but not anymore, of course. No. But it could have been then. That was a long time ago. No, but remember, we're in, in a peculiar family here. Remember, these are not uh, f- a full-blooded Israelites. So to they have all this Egyptian blood in them and everything else. Eh? Descendants of Joseph uh, through Asenath the daughter of the high priest of Heliopolis in Egypt. That was the mother of Joseph. and. Uh, the mother of Ephraim and Manasseh, and they were descendants of Manasseh. And we boast that we are descendants of Ephraim. See, these people get around. That's the idea. See, this is one thing we don't realize. We used to think that in old times, people not, didn't get around at all. I mean, you, you never looked over the hill. In some societies, that's true. You know, people either don't get around at all, or once you start moving, you might as well keep going, you see. Once you start in your yacht, you see, for, uh, out to Catalina, well, if you have having a surprise, might as well make it for Hawaii, Why not? <laughs> you have that impulse. I've had friends that do that. As long as you're going, what, what difference does it make? Days, two days, five days? Uh, and once you stop, it's hard to start, it's hard to stop, actually. So uh, the uh, people have been circulating an awful long way for an awful long time. Well, these marvelous uh, things being discovered now about the navigation in the South Seas from the islands, from Tonkin, and so forth. And then they're uh, willing and able. And the two sons of Ishmael, all, they, don't, they changed their mind. Two sons of Ishmael and their families rebelled against me. Yes. And two daughters of Ishmael, they set it going. These daughters did not want to leave town. And uh, two sons of Ishmael sympathized with them. They put their heads together and decided, no more, no more. And now uh, Nephi has a chance to display his rhetorical skill again. He's going to persuade them to say, you notice the line of argument he uses. Uh, they were desirous to return to the land of Jerusalem. Notice the lands of their inheritance were not in the city of Jerusalem, but far down when they went to get their property for living. The land of Jerusalem is the term that's used anciently. When it says Je- Jesus will be born in the land of Jerusalem, everybody made fun of that. I say, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem's in the land of Jerusalem, of course. It was anciently referred to it as that. And, the, uh, and, and Bethlehem, after all, is just a suburb, just six miles south. I mean, it's a, an, an easy walk, actually, a morning walk very easily. Uh, into the land of Jerusalem. And this sounds like Nehi- Nephi is a prude at the beginning, but he isn't. You have very serious circumstances here, he says. I spake unto them, saying, Yea, even unto Laman and Lemuel, behold, now he starts one of his lectures. Ye are mine elder brethren, and how is it that you are so hard in your honey? He recognized him, he, the courtesy, you are my elder brethren. How is it that you are so hard in your hearts and so blind in your minds that you have need that I, your younger brother, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm not assuming anything. I shouldn't be doing this. Your younger brother should speak unto you and set an example for you. Well, is this tactless or so forth? No, I say this is no ordinary situation. How is it that you've forgotten that you've seen an angel? First argument, exhortatio, you see. The second argument, and Have you forgotten the things the Lord has done for us in delivering us out of the hands of Laban? You just escaped Laban. Not one chance in a million of getting away with that. And that you got the record. And have you forgotten that the Lord is able to do all things according to His will for the children of men if they exercise faith in Him? And have you forgotten, he's going on with his arguments, that we shall obtain a land of promise? These are the positive arguments, you see. That we shall obtain a land of prophets, and you shall know at some future period that the word of the Lord shall be fulfilled. Concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, you don't want to go back there. For the Spirit of the Lord ceaseth soon to strive with them. They have rejected the prophet Jeremiah. Here he knows what's going on in the city. Here's our Lakeish business, you see. They have cast him into prison. They have sought to take away the life of my father. Insomuch they have driven him out of the land. Now what sort of a chance have we got there? So he says to them very tactfully now, after these arguments, all right, if you want to go back, you're perfectly welcome. I have no power over him, your younger brother, he says. And now if you have choice to go up to the land, All right, all you have to do, go ahead. Remember the words which I speak unto you, and if you go, you will also perish. So go ahead and welcome. They thought about that again. And they just got mad when he said it. Just got, they were furious. They tied him up and left him behind to be devoured by the beasts. Another common practice in the desert. Uh, you won't kill a person. That's, that's murder. But if you tie him up and just leave him there, you don't have to worry. Let the animals carry that out. Now that's a, a custom too that you read about in, in the Arab poets and so forth. Well, the Lord gave him strength and he burst his bounds. and. Uh, Prayer plus effort did it. You notice he he prayed with all his might and he strained with all his might. And it came to pass when I said these words, the bands were loosened from my hands and feet and I stood and spake to my brethren again. Uh, And uh, again here you see, uh, he didn't consider this a miracle. He said nothing about being miraculous. He just said he prayed and he strained and his bands were, were loosened. And it came to pass that they were angry with him again. They weren't overpowered at all. Until the daughters pleaded with them, one of the mothers of Ishmael, uh, the mother, and one of the daughters have pleaded with them, and this is a thing that no Arab under any circumstance can resist. If a woman pleads from the other tribe, even if it's the worst enemy, against your worst enemy, if a daughter or a mother pleads, then you are under obligations. This is the chivalric code, you see, the chivalry. The rules of chivalry in the Middle Ages were adopted in the Crusades, you know, and taken back uh, in the time of Edward I. And uh, they were taken from the Arabs. Of course, it was the Arabs that taught them. The great, the great knight, all the chivalry on the side of, uh, in the Crusades was shown on the side of the Arabs. Salahaddin, the greatest, uh, the greatest noblest knight of them all, who was so kind to Richard I, who treated everybody else so badly, who slaughtered everybody else. He sent him some when he was sick. He sent him his favorite physician and he, uh, physician, and he sent him some sherbet and he sent him some recipes and things like that. Well, no Westerner would ever do that for him. Uh, that was uh, Salahaddin, and so he. Uh, The daughters pleaded and it did soften their hearts. Incidentally, if you want the best possible, it's called, and I think rightly so, probably, the greatest travel book ever written is the two volumes of Charles Doughty called Travels in Arabia Deserta. Charles Doughty is the great classic. He's the one that they all went on. It was the end of the 19th century, uh, that Charles Doughty. O-U-G-H, you can get him. You can get him in paper pack. As a matter of fact, travels in Arabia desert him. This tra- describes minutely all the customs he went out and lived among them uh, all those years, and suffered greatly. But what an eye! What an observer! Well, there are others, of course. Uh, the later ones, like Captain Bertram Thomas and uh, Philby and others, <coughs> and they bowed down before him. Well now, bowing down that they might have well given in when they were mad and very mad at him, bound him up a little while before, but dying down before him when you 've done a, a serious wrong to someone, the only way to apologize is to bow down to him that 's another custom. bowing down was an act of a, of apology and not of submission they 're not bowing down in submission at all they 're still the older brother, but they apologize for the wrong they have done. they reverse it you see and, uh, and they pleaded with him that he would forgive them you see you say. Is this plausible? Well, this happens all the time. This is classic. And I did exhort them that they should pray unto the Lord their God for forgiveness. And then they went back to the tent of their father, unto the tent of my father, and offered sacrifice. Notice every time they come back, they offer the sacrifice of the return. After a successful journey or expedition or project, you offer a special misbeach there. And notice the beginning of the next chapter, we did. Gather all manner of seeds of every kind, both of grain of every kind and fruit of every kind. Does that mean vegetarian diet? where they going to live on seeds? No, of course. They were intending to settle somewhere. They were going to plant these. They were going to farm. They were going to establish a community. When they were told to cross the ocean, they were all just bowled over completely. But here, when we get to that, but here they're all, obviously they're going to settle and make a, another community in the desert. There have been many, many of those. Uh, make straight his path in the wilderness, and so forth, waiting for the coming of the Lord. And again, his father is a very significant statement showing the levels of revelation you can have. In the second verse, Behold, I have dreamed a dream, or in other words, I have seen a vision. What's the difference between a dream and a vision? Well, you, you'll just have to know for yourself, see the nature of the dream and so forth. And this was a classic dream of dreams. Of course, anti-Mormons have written this well. Joseph Smith Sr. had a dream like this. Once he dreamed he was in the woods, it was all stumps there and so forth. But this is the most common of dreams after all. Said, how does the uh, uh, how does Dante start? In the midst of the journey of my life, I would suddenly find myself in a dark forest, and it occurred to me that I'd lost my way, and Piers Plowman, a 12th century English epic begins, Oh, it starts out, In the summer says, And when soft was the song, I me and as the sheep And it goes on and on. But then he fa- comes to the, to the parting of the ways, and he must decide the ways. He's lost, and he has to have a guide, and the guide guides him on his way. And that's the story of every man, and all sorts of a story. And It's the story of Zosimus, a third-century and the mystic, he finds himself and he has to be guided and so forth. And John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, he's lost, remember? He's in the uh, Swamp of Despair, the, the, uh, the color of Despond. He's taken the castle and so forth. But he always has to be guided. So the idea of a person who is lost in this life, because this life, well incidentally, Dante is met by a guide. And who is the guide? It's Virgil, isn't it? Well, Virgil himself writes about the two ways. There is the ivory gate and the gate of horn. One is of bad dreams, the other is of good dreams. With this idea of finding yourself lost, because that's what we are in this world. We are lost. The thing you most commonly dream, and these people are out in the desert under very dangerous circumstances. We've described Lehi's dreams elsewhere. We don't need to go into them here. But he sees a man dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. This is the person who's going to be his guide. Uh, He's going to be his. uh, his paralemptor uh, is the is a classical word for the person who guides you through the the ordinance, the temple, and so forth. Ancient, because you have to. It is a man dressed in a white robe, and he finds himself in a dark and dreary wastes, per una selva in a dark forest. You see, as Dante says, and. Uh, then he came to a large and spacious field It opens out, and that's the Maidan. The Maidan plays a very important part in, in mythology, dreams, and history. So that's the broad field that opens out, and Maidan is a field of contest. It's, a, it's an athletic field. It's very important in, uh, well, wherever you hold a, a chivalric contest, chivalry, where you have a fighter or anything like that, a display, that's a Maidan, an athletic field. Well, the time's nearly up now. And, this is, frankly, a parable. It's an allegory. He says it is. We came to behold a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. The fruit thereof is white with all exceeding whiteness that I had ever seen, and it was desirable above all other fruit, and by that was a river of water. And, uh, of course, <laughs> this is the Egyptian question, and you ask her how literal is this? Well, of course, if you're in the desert, what do you need? If you don't perish, you need food, of course, what put, but we'll give it to you, only a tree. With a tree of fruit, that, you'll die of thirst or hunger, and you must have water, but you must have food, and the food, the tree will only grow where there's, where there's fruit. Here I have a picture of a, one in the desert. This is down in the way, it's far, hard to believe that these ways were, these pictures were once so, so top secret that I would have had to go to the Calabozo if I told where they'd come from. This is right along Levi's Way, lo- right, right along the uh, the Arabia there, and there's a spring that comes down at the foot. But this is a different kind of spring. Oh, uh, here's a typical picture of a street in Jerusalem. It'd be easy to bump somebody off in that street and get away with it, wouldn't it? Well, lots of the streets of old Jerusalem are just like that, as some of you know. But anyway, he... Uh, the river, the tree, of course, is drawn by a river of water. Well, the first psalm begins that way. He shall be, the righteous man shall be as a tree planted by a pool of water. The tree needs the water whose fruit does not fall off prematurely and whose leaves stay on. Well, which bears its fruit, uh, which bear brings forth fruit, which brings forth fruit and its leaves fall not off. So you're compared the tree that grows by the pulavon, he'd know the first psalm, he'd know that by sight. So it's a figure to dream about, everybody would dream about it naturally. And uh, that's what we're having here, he dreams about that. Because that's your life. Your life is saved if you found the water and if you found the fruit. You're not going to find the fruit if there's not water by it. And at the head thereof, he saw his father and mother. Well, I have a picture here from the the next time, from the uh, Dura Europus synagogue, the oldest Jewish building known in the world, discovered a few years ago and excavated at Dura Europus in the uh, Euphrates on the Tigris, isn't it? Dura Europus, well into Asia there, a third century synagogue, the oldest synagogue known. And here is the tree of life, you see, and it's bearing all sorts of fruit, and under it is uh, Isaac and the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. And here is Joseph uh, blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, or uh, uh, Jacob uh, blessing Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, or Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau, we'll get it right sometime, Uh, and uh, here are the twelve, and here is the is the Orphic figure who is playing a music of beautiful harmony. The tree is full of animals, there are birds and animals there, and all creatures are being fed on the fruit of the tree. This is the tree of life, and it's right over the main shrine, this is where the shrine of the Torah was, of this very ancient synagogue, the oldest church, Jewish church we know. Right over it is this tree of life, with all the symbolism that is brought out in, by Nephi here. He's going to say that all creatures are fed on it and everything else. This is, uh, blow it up, it's in that, I don't know, do they include any any illustrations in that book, uh, uh, Lehigh in the Desert and things like that? Oh no, this is uh, uh, Since Camorra. Yes, there's a picture of this in Since Camorra, I do believe, a, a bigger one, yes. But see, the Tree of Life was a central thing, and I say nobody knew anything about this until about 19. Let me see, about 1940, wasn't it, uh, when they, the Dura Opus was discovered, and it told us all sorts of things about the Jews we didn't know before, but w- notice what an important position they give to the Tree of Life, and here are and here are the 12 sons of Israel here against, uh, surrounded by, surrounding Jacob or Israel. Well, I see the time's up now, but we have to move along. Well, we are moving a little bit. And then they come to the rod of iron. Yes, so we'll take it up at the tree there.